You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we're thankful that when you gave us your revelation, you didn't water it down. You gave us everything we needed for life and godliness in Christ. And so this morning, as we look into the end of the first chapter of book, 1 Corinthians, and as Paul begins to, uh, in a more forceful way, encourage the Corinthians to come back to the cross, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to do that as well, uh, to continually come back to the cross, come back to the gospel as it was preached, as it was given. And so this morning, give us wisdom. We ask your Holy Spirit to be the teacher here. And Lord, we thank you for what you're going to impart to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read, to get some context, <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. We ended up on chapter 1, verse 22 last week. So 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That just as, is, is just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, the longer you're a Christian, and the more you study the word of God, and the more the the grace of God is poured on you to understand the Word of God, there's a danger that you can become pretty happy with yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm better than I was 10 years ago. I'm smarter than I was. I'm better able to help people. I'm pretty special. I'm okay. And as in all things biblical, there's a balance. The Lord will impart to His his children, as they spend more time with him and, and develop that relationship with the Son of God, that he will impart to them a better understanding, a better ability. But it's important for us to remember, as the Corinthians had forgotten, that it is he who imparts that to us. It is he who gives that to us. It's not something that we generated of our own wisdom. It's not something that we have 
pulled up out of our own internal ability, as it were. Whatever we have, whatever gifts, whatever wonders that proceed forth from us, if they do indeed, are from God Himself. They're gifts. And the reason God does that is because we've got 12 chapters to go to get to the love chapter. But the word love actually has as its foundation and kindness, the word kindness, they both have as their foundation the concept of usefulness, being able to be employed by the Father to bring the gospel to the world, to bring healing to people who are hurting, to bring encouragement to people who need it. And so as we are able to be able to be used that way, and when you say be able to be able twice like that, it's a redundancy and I apologize for that. But as we are enabled to be used that way, let's not be like the Corinthians. Let's remember humbly that it is, it is from the Father. It's from His gracious hand that has give, been given to us the ability to be used by Him. And so as Paul begins to work into that, he's going to be coming at the Corinthians about their uh, self-absorption with themselves, their own abilities, the wonder that they are, how good it was that God saved them. Boy, he really got a bargain. <laughs> and, and I know, and, and we laugh, and that's good. We, it, we should laugh because uh, it, hap- I, it can happen to any one of us, does happen to any one of us. Our usefulness is a gift from God, and we should be just incredibly grateful that he has chosen us to be used by him. And so we left off in verse 22, with the Corinthians needing more wisdom and the Jews needing a sign. And as I mentioned, this only sign Jesus gave to the Jews was the sign of Jonah, three days in the whale, three days in the earth. And then he rose from the dead. And the wisdom that Paul gives to the Greeks is the cross, the message of the cross, the message of Jesus Christ crucified, which was wisdom that the world just couldn't see and will only see when the Holy Spirit plows up that ground and bends that stiff neck, as he has done to the, to the blessed believers in this church. So we ended with that last part, that neither the Jews nor the Greeks were interested for the most part in the gospel. Unbelievers always have a reason for rejecting the gospel. It is only those who are drawn by the Holy Spirit who have a change of heart so that they do not need signs or wisdom, but the preaching of Jesus and him on the cross. And so verse 23, verse 22, to give a little context, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Today we're looking at verse 23. But we preach Christ Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Paul stayed the course, and he clung to, and he preached only the gospel. He did not shy away from the, the message that was rejected by so many because it was the truth. And so he preached his heart out wherever he went, Christ crucified and risen again. He caused the Jews to stumble, and he caused the Greeks to shake their heads in need for greater wisdom. In fact, actually, the gospel caused this. A story is told of a church that declined from the strong preaching of Christ. They, they started out well, they started their race well, and then they deviated from the truth. They deviated from the hard message of the gospel. And in that deviation, they lost the message. 
They said this. Let every pulpit rightly say, we preach Christ crucified. And that strong church had inscribed these words on an archway leading to their churchyard. Over time, two things began to happen. The church lost its passion for Jesus and his gospel. And ivy began to grow on the archway. The growth of the ivory, ivy, covering the message, showed the spiritual decline. Originally, it said strongly, we preach Christ crucified. But as the ivy grew, one could only read, we preach Christ. And the church also started preaching Jesus, the great man, and Jesus, the moral example, instead of Christ crucified. The ivy kept growing, and one could soon only read, we preach. The church also had even lost Jesus in the message, preaching religious platitudes and social graces. Finally, one could only read, we. And the church also just became another social gathering place, all about we and not about God. As, as the message of Christ begins to lose its central position in the life of the church, so the gospel declines. And so that church became a post-Christian church, if you will, if that's not an oxymoron. That just came to me, and that's really weird. But a post-Christian church, there should never be any such thing. When we water down the message of the gospel and try to make it less offensive to the world, we actually destroy the message. We destroy the message itself and we compromise the demands it makes on the hearers. You must be born again. God's not in the business of watering down truth. The message of the cross was offensive then and it is offensive now. It was offensive in first century Greece and it's offensive in North Idaho today. The word stumbling block is a translation of the Greek word from which we get the word scandal, scandalon. And indeed, it is a scandal. It is a strange and yet wondrous. Uh, it is strange and yet wondrous, the message of the gospel is. It is offensive and yet beautiful. Those who are being saved see it as wondrous and beautiful. But those who are perishing see it as strange and offensive. The man or woman of God who would bring the gospel to the world must not let that change their dedication to the message as it is given in the word of God. We must preach Christ, crucified, and resurrected. It is a difficult truth, but as we all know, the truth is often difficult, especially when it searches out our own hearts and brings to light the things that need to change in us. It tells us what we don't want to hear, that we are sinners deserving only of death, and further, that the only way this can be undone is by simple belief, faith in the one who provided the way to the Father. But no, the Jews needed a sign. And like I said, Jesus would not give them one, but he gave them the sign of Jonah when he spent three days in the grave and then ascended to the Father. The Greeks needed what they considered wisdom. But Paul would not give that to them. Instead, he gave them the cross. He gave them the Son of God, murdered on the cross for the sins of all who will trust in him. Resurrected and glorified because he was and is in fact the creator God of the universe. The very ones who thought that they needed some sort of wisdom in order to sort the salvation they needed out on their own. It cannot be done. Trust only in the one who has done it. It's difficult for us to understand today, at least it was for me, maybe not for you, but it it was for me when I really started working through this. The astonishment this message would have produced in first century Greece. For us today, the cross is almost, it's a cherished symbol of our salvation Um, We hang it on our walls. We 
we we use it as bookmarks. We it, it it's in the front and the it's on each side of it bookends favorite scriptures. The cross is a beautiful thing to us in 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 the way that it should be. But in first century Greece, it was a horrifying thing. It was it was a method. It was a to 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 a, to have allegiance to the cross was to have allegiance to a method of executing criminals. Um, one, of the, one of the commentators I read put it this way. It was um, Gordon Fee. He said, It is hard for those in the Christianized West where the cross for almost 19 centuries has been the primary symbol of the faith to appreciate how utterly mad the message of a God who got himself crucified by his enemies must have seemed to the first century Greek or Roman. But it is precisely the depth of this scandal and folly that we must appreciate if we are to understand both why the Corinthians were moving away from it and toward wisdom and why it was well over a century before the cross appears among Christians as a symbol of their faith. It was a mad message. It was a difficult message. And today it still is. When you try to, try to get this across, play on words there, the message of the cross to those who will not hear it. It's a difficult message for them. And so prayer is important to be asking God to plow up, as I said, that, that, that heart, to, to bend that stiff neck so that when we preach Christ crucified, it becomes a blessing to those who will trust, to the called. <laughs> Any comments about verse 23? <clears throat> and I actually, in verse 24, I can't believe I missed the whole... Every time I study through the scripture, I find new and wondrous things. And I just finished this chapter. And it's like I really want to say, we're not going to do verse 24 this morning because I just discovered more about verse 24. But we're going to go ahead and talk about verse 24 and bring up things as you hear them, as you, as you think of them. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, coming off of 23, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So to the, to the, to the unsaved Jew, he needs a sign. But to the saved Jew, he's the power, he has the sign. It's the cross. It's the power of God. To the unsaved Greek, who needs some sort of sophisticated reasoning and, and check marks that he can check off, to the saved Greek, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. So Paul ties this up as he spoke to both the Jews and the Greeks in a general way about unbelief. To the ones who are called Jew or Greek, they will see Christ as the power of God. He is their sign, and he is their wisdom of God. He answers the questions they ask about life and eternity. There is no need to adapt the message as the modern pseudo-preachers do. While anecdote, history, and word definitions and such may fill out some specific beauty of a scripture, we must never subsume the powerful message of the cross of Christ to these things. Spurgeon said it this way, Certain divines tell us that they must adapt truth to the advance of the age, which means, and in his own inimitable way, he gets very graphic here, he, which means that they must murder it and fling its dead body to the dogs, which simply means that a popular lie shall take place of an offensive truth. And so if your anecdote, as you're preaching the gospel, as you're teaching it, as you're encouraging it, as you're, as you're telling it, as you're 
giving it with your testimony. If your anecdote, history, definitions and such frame and hold up to men's view the message of the cross of Christ, then well and good. But if they become your message, then you're hiding from men's view the only thing that can save them. Paul is telling the Corinthians that. It is to those who are the called, and that's the part that I missed. I didn't see those two words like I did as I was restudying this this morning. The called. Who are the called? Is it everybody? I wish it was. God wishes it was, in parentheses, in Titus. But who are the called? It's the ones that God has chosen as a love gift to His Son. It's the folks sitting in these chairs this morning. It's the church universal who worships the true God and, and preaches His true message. They are the called. Those people, both Jews and Greeks, and I would add, and Turks and South Dakotans and everybody, who are the called. It is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So as we're, as we're working through ways to spread the message, let's make sure that the message stays the message. And I don't mean that new translation either. I mean this message, the message of the cross, stays the message that we try to get across by God's grace. Any comments? Jim. The called. Amen. Everybody hear that? The called. God's sovereign choice. Absolutely. If the Holy Spirit is moving you in a direction to minister to somebody, you are the person that needs to be ministering to that somebody. Oh, but I can't do it. Yes, you can. In Christ, you can do all things. And, and we're going to talk exactly about what Jim mentioned. There's so much that depends on marketing strategies, right? And plans and demographics. And boy, what would, what would uh, Whitfield have done with all of that? He would have watered the gospel down and he would have not prepared the way for the great awakening. Talk about Jonathan Edwards and how he preached. Very, very interesting man. But we'll get to that. I, I'm stealing my own thunder. And so to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, I, pardon me if I get excited about this, because I should not have been one of the called. I'm worthless, but I'm one of the called. And, and this is beautiful. This is so exciting because to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, the power, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard someone say, I got more smarts in my little finger than you got in your whole body? You ever heard anybody say that? Is that true, really? I hope my cerebellum isn't in my finger, you know, don't, don't leave this thing alone or I won't be able to breathe tomorrow. You know, what's, that's called hyperbole, exaggeration, okay? Paul is a master of exaggeration. Is God foolish in any way, shape, or form? Is God weak in any way, shape, or form? Okay, that sets the stage for some exaggeration by the Spirit-inspired Apostle Paul. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The little finger of God is stronger than all of the atom bombs. Well, they're not atom bombs anymore. I'm old. Uh, nuclear bombs on the planet. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's setting up the Corinthians who look to the erudite, the wise, the big, the strong, the powerful, the noble. He's setting them up for an understanding of the message of the cross. This is, 
He says that because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is typical Pauline hyperbole. He uses it elsewhere all the time. Of course, Paul doesn't think God is foolish. But if for some reason there was some kind of foolishness associated with God, it would yet be infinitely wiser than men. That's what he's saying. Nor does he think God is weak. God is not weak. The, the, the person who spoke and it was, let there be light and the universe came into existence. And should there be some form of weakness associated with God, the God of the universe, it would be infinitely stronger than man's greatest strength combined. So the message of the cross before salvation is foolish. But after, it is comforting, fantastic, wondrous, and ever so beautiful. Have you ever, those of you who have kids, have you tried to pound something into your kids and, and, and it was right, it was biblical, it was sound, it was moral, and they weren't getting it. And then some friend, kid, neighbor said essentially the same thing and they got it. And you went, what am I, chopped liver? Your foolishness Whatever it was, the heart was plowed up, the time was ripe, and they became, in that aspect, one of the called. Just be grateful. <laughs> just, we need to just be grateful. And who knows how much of the ground plowing was done by your attempts to bring them to that truth. So that the neighbor, friend, kid, whoever it was that shouldn't have had the accolades, you should have got the praise for that. But whoever it was, just be grateful that they got it. I am so grateful. I have given the message of the gospel to people and, and, and it never took. It never took. It never took for years. And then somebody else, it's okay, I watered. Praise God. The seed was there. Maybe I didn't even plant the seed. I don't care. I'm just glad. And who gets the glory? We're going to talk about that too. But we'll get to that. I'm stealing my thunder again. Okay. The message... So the message of the cross before salvation is foolish, but after it is comforting, it's fantastic, it's wonderful and ever so beautiful. The message of a rescue that should never have come, should never have come, but it did. Before salvation, that message, the message of the cross, speaks of a God who was so weak that he couldn't even save himself. Remember the Jews looking up at him, if you're so strong, save yourself, come down off of that cross. After salvation, it shows us the called, a strength so far beyond anything that humans can accomplish that we sit in wonder and gratefulness, humbled and rightly so, that this God, the God of the universe, who created all things simply by speaking, he created all things simply by speaking, would condescend to me. Unbelievable. And so again, we must not displace the cross and its message with studies, analysis of the people group we're ministering to, targeted methods. Now, this is not to say that studies, analysis, and methods do not have a place. But they must not displace the cross. One commentator put it this way. At the moment, books are pouring off the presses telling us how to plan for success. How vision consists in clearly articulated ministry goals. How the knowledge of detailed profiles of our communities constitutes the key to successful outreach. I'm not for a moment suggesting, this man said, it's uh, D.A. Carson. I'm not for a moment suggesting 
that there is nothing to be learned from such studies. But after a while, one may perhaps be excused for marveling how many churches were planted by Paul and Whitfield and Wesley and Stanway and Judson without enjoying these advantages. Of course, all of us need to understand the people to whom we minister. And all of us can benefit from small doses of such literature. But massive doses, sooner or later, dilute the gospel. Ever so subtly, we, should, we start to think that success more critically depends on thoughtful sociological analysis than on the gospel. Barna becomes more important than the Bible. We depend on plans, programs, vision statements. But somewhere along the way, we have succumbed to the temptation to displace the foolishness of the cross with the wisdom of strategic planning. Again, Carson says, I insist my position is not a thinly veiled flea for obscurantism, for seat-of-the-pants ministry that plans nothing. Rather, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery, the analysis, the studies, the demographics, whenever periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. Wow, what a great statement. The periphery is needed, but it must remain in the periphery. Ron. And, and as those things form a frame to bring us back to the cross, they're fine. When I was, when Kim, my wife is, well, she'll probably, don't tell her I told you this. She's a fantastic artist. Her art used to hang in colleges years ago. And I used to make her frames. Why? I guess because I was the husband. <laughs> but if the frame attracts attention, the frame was improperly constructed. Whether it attracts good attention or bad attention, it was improperly constructed. The frame of a photo, of a picture, I mean, should focus your attention on the, on the picture, on the painting. And so the periphery, the studies, the demographics, the, the debate of Calvinism, Arminianism, etc. are all fine in their place. But they must be a frame that you only notice peripherally as it focuses your attention on the cross. All the books pouring off the presses. Mm -hmm. The wisdom of the Greeks. And they had 50 different ways to understand all the important questions of life. And all of them were wrong. <laughs> oh, we're good at getting it wrong. Another man said... One can scarcely conceive a more important and more difficult passage for the church today than this one. It is difficult for the very reason it was in Corinth. We simply cannot abide the scandal of God's doing things His way without our help. And to do it by means of such weakness and folly. But we have often succeeded in blunting the scandal by symbol or creed or propositions or movie clips or fill in the blank. God will not be so easily tamed and, freed from its shackles, the preaching of the cross alone has the power to set people free. And it's a good thing, too. The fact is, those who would admonish us to adapt, to the, gospel, adapt the gospel to today's society so that they can relate to it need to understand that in Paul's day, the problem, at least in the minds of the world there, was the same. The people of his day could not relate to a criminal killed on a cross. Paul stayed with the message of the cross to great effect, and we would do well to do the same today. That, I, that verse, just when I read that, I went, God's not foolish. And it prompted all of this wandering, I guess I could call it. But 
stay true to the cross is what Paul is saying. Wisdom's fine in its place when it's under the authority of the Scripture of God. Any comments? Any other comments about verse 24, 25, I mean? <laughs> Just because I don't know what verse we're on isn't any big deal. Verse 26. For consider your calling. Now, now this harks back to me, at least, to verse 24. To those who are the called. That's kind of a Paul's tossing out. But to those of you in this body who are actually Christians, he's saying, who are actually saved, both of you, Jews and Greeks, sitting here right here in, in Corinth, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise. And so the wise man in row three goes, Hmm, that's pretty offensive. According to the flesh, not many mighty. And so the wrestler who has never lost. It's sitting in row seven. Oh, well, thanks a lot, Paul. Not many noble. And so the, the Roman senator, that could happen, in row, in row 12. Actually, he'd probably be in row one because he thinks that's where he belongs. Well, what are you talking about, Paul? Not many wise, not according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. There weren't many of those. If you were to go down the roster of the membership at the church in Corinth, you wouldn't find very many wise, nor very many who were in high office, nor very many who were of the dignified upper class. It's very probable that those who were there, many, the many of the self-appointed wise, noble, and mighty in the Corinthian church, like I said earlier, were certainly glad that God had saved them and certainly aware of the fact that God was glad he had saved them because they were so useful, so needy. Were they not educated? Didn't they not have positions of, of influence that could be of benefit to the church? Were they not well-respected and therefore able to further the message of the gospel? No, no, and no. Paul is chipping away at their self-importance here. And they weren't people who wisely, nobly, and mightily cho chose Christ, he said. You weren't people. He didn't choose those. Many. There are some. He didn't choose many. They were called by him through no importance or worth of their own. Later in chapter 2, Paul fleshes this out. It's important that men not trust in their own wisdom, strength, or nobility because of sal for salvation. Because when that fails, your wisdom, your nobility, your strength, when that fails, and it will, it will, the comfort of salvation will wane and fail. It's a false calling. If I come to Christ because I'm smart enough to do that, when them smarts fail, and they will fail, you will become aware that not many wise, not many what mighty, and not many noble were chosen. And so Paul fleshes that all out later, and, and so it should be, because that kind of salvation is not real. Believers trust in the work of Christ, knowing that it is infallible and perfect. The Jews would have understood this as a prophecy from the Old Testament. The Greeks, if they were discerning and, and told themselves the truth they would recognize that with over 50 different methods of answering the great questions of life, there was no certainty in Greek wisdom. Choose your lie. It's the same today. That's not to say that there will not be some wise, some mighty, some noble among believers. But let's face it, they will find it harder to make the life-changing choice of trusting such a strange and difficult message. They will struggle to give themselves over to a God who seemed to falter and fail. Indeed, it will be the lowly that God will use to change the world. <laughs> I had a, a margin note there. So it's not Cornell Scripture. It's in the margin. You know, I won't read it. 
It's always, it's been God's plan to choose the weak. In the day that you will feel, in that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds, but you, but which, by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove your, from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Zephaniah 3, 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians 3. We'll get to that in a few years. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is, in, is foolishness before God. There's some correct... Well, the Holy Spirit used it earlier, so it's correct hyperbole. But there's some acceptable, correct, obvious hyperbole. The wisdom of men is foolishness. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Not useful a certain percentage of the time. God says they're useless. And in Matthew 11, Jesus said this in verses 25 and 26. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligence and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And so, so it is that then and today, Christians will often be accused of being silly, ignorant, unscientific, etc., etc., in the second century, there, was a Greek, there were many Greek writers who mocked the Christians for this very reason. They noted that the gospel appealed more to the lower classes rather than to the upper classes. And they created a narrative that explained it. There was one writer named Celsus, or properly, more modern pronounced, Celsus. Um, I, no, that's not where we get the Celsius temperature scale. <laughs> but there was one writer named Celsus, and Origen or, Origen Origen wrote against him against his statements about this and it was actually called Contra Celsus in response to some of the charges which came in a treatise written by this man and this man called his treatise the true word here are some of the things that were said about Christians in the century, second century and ladies note what non-Christians thought about women in the second century the following are the rules. He's, this is Celsus speaking as though this is what the Christians are saying. This is what the Christian, average Christian says. The following are the rules laid down by them. Let no one come to us who has been instructed or who is wise or prudent. For such qualifications are deemed evil by us. But if there be any ignorant or unintelligent or uninstructed or foolish persons, let them come with confidence. By which words... Acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God, they manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over only, here's the only people that they can gain over into Christianity, the silly, the mean, the stupid, with women and children. What a low view they had of people. A wrong low view. Only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make converts. It's the only folks that are going to come to Christianity, said Celsus. I thought about providing Origen's uh, answers to it, but we have the scripture. For why is it an evil to have been... And here he asked this question. He said, okay, Christians, why is it an evil to have been educated and to have studied the best opinions and to have both the reality and the appearance of wisdom? Or so he thought. What hindrance does this offer to the knowledge of God? Why should it not rather be an assistance and a means by which one might better be able to arrive at the truth? And Paul answered that, and he said those that the, the things of the Spirit are not discerned naturally. They're discerned spiritually. And Celsus had none of that. 
He was puffed up in his own self. I already know all this stuff. What do I need this for? And, and Paul, your preaching is only going to reach slaves, uneducated, and women and children. Hello? Wasn't that... How would that go along? How would that happen? Well, it, it, regarding Christianity, it would, it would come across to the masses just fine today. I guess it would. Of course, the narrative was wrong then, just as it is today. And so the atheist will mock the Christian who believes in creation. He will call him simple, uninstructed, unscientific. There are still those who equate Christianity with stupidity, silliness, and lack of education. Now as then, we should see this almost as a badge of honor. Because we know that the truth will only be revealed to those who are the called. Not because we're smarter. Not because we're wiser. Not because we're more noble but because of his sovereign choice, he chose us. We also know that none of us deserved it any more than the others, and we are just simply grateful to God that God has chosen the weak, the ignorant, and the simple to show his love to. And so in the second century, they were already proliferating arguments explaining just what 1 Corinthians answers. And they used that, I, I believe they used that text to provide their argumentum. Any comments? Questions? Verse 25, and we'll finish, or excuse me, I'm still not, not sure where we're at, but verse 27, and we'll finish with this. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, Kelsus. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, Kelsus. Not only has God chosen the foolish for salvation, but he has chosen them to shame the self-important self-proclaimed wise of the day. He has chosen the weak to shame those who believe they are strong. The world values things like intellect, wealth, notoriety, and position. God values faith. He values his son. God chooses those whom the world ignores. This is not to say that the intelligent, wealthy, well-known, and well-positioned cannot be saved. Of course they can. It is to say, though, that those who are deemed by the world to be foolish because of their simple faith in the risen Christ are actually the wise. The wealthy men and women of note and position, they are the wise, they are the wealthy, they are those of note and position in, in heaven. Does it not say that he would be first must be last? And that the last will be first? These people, the chosen, you, are seated at the right hand of God in Christ. Do you think that's a pretty important place? Is it more important than a 4-H leader? 4-H leaders are important, aren't they? Is it more important than... I would use some political position, but everything's more important than that, so I'm not going to use that. They are seated at the right hand of God in Christ, and at some point, when all of this is, com is consummated, and Christ comes again, those who remain trusting their position, their wealth, and their name will be put to shame by those who trusted Christ. As it has been said so many times, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Everyone who comes to Christ comes to him on his terms, and well that we should, or well that they should. His terms are perfect. They exchange our wickedness for his righteousness. They exchange our death for eternal life. They exchange misery for blessedness. Once and for all, done and done. And so those who would put their faith in wisdom and wealth and nobility are going to be shamed. 
those who put their faith in the risen Son of God are going to be exalted. And even as they are exalted, they will be humbled because they know that exaltation itself was a work of God. Let's pray. Father, those of us that are of no account, that are lowborn, that are weak, that are unwise, look to you every day for your wisdom, for your strength. And we only want it so that we can exalt you, so that we can lift you up, so that we can encourage others to look to you, to the Son, so that they might see that the cross is a message of hope, that the cross is a message of redemption, that the cross is a message of elevatedness and and a choice that God has made. Might we be those people today as we go forth from here and as we hear more this morning that we trust you, we trust you for our salvation, we trust you for our day-to-day sanctification, and we trust you for what comes in the end. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.